Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we have a fish wrap for you today. Today's newspapers, tomorrow's fish wrap, because there is a lot of news. A lot of it distressing. But given that, I think we should start with something that's uplifting. So from today's living section in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, the artwork has landed Dateline East Hampton Art in the Orchard returns for its seventh season. If you haven't been to see Art Art in the Orchard, you really should go. Do yourself and do your family, do the kids and the adults a big favor and go to see Art in the Orchard. I haven't seen it this year yet, but I have seen it, I think, every other year. The article by Steve Ferrer, along with its varieties of apples and other fruit, Park Hill Orchard in East Hampton, now has some larger objects available, though just for viewing. Artworks, Art in the Orchard, the biennial exhibit of outdoor sculpture and installations has returned for its seventh season at Park Hill, which first hosted the event in 2011. Something of an experiment back then, and it put art among the trees and the fields, and they they said, let's see what happens. And since then, Art in the Orchard has become a fixture every two years on the Valley's art calendar, bringing upward of 30,000 visitors to Park Hill, where they can wander a trail through the grounds in view of all sorts of inventive installations, giant metal insects, mixed-media pieces hanging from trees, wooden statues, stoneware structures crafted from hay, all sorts of things. It's just really interesting. It's really fun. And it's at Park Hill Orchard, where the food is fabulous, and you can buy all sorts of artsy kinds of things. It's just a great time for the family. I think the best thing uh, uh, about the uh, Outdoor Sculpture Park is that the mountains, the surroundings, the orchard becomes part of it. You look and see where these things are set, and and they're part of the sculptural, uh, I I lack the words, but the, the, the entire picture is just gorgeous. It's really an incredible experience. Yeah, let me just quote a couple other sentences. Insects at play, Humor has long been a key component of the works in Art in the Orchard. A newcomer this year, Kimberly McDonald of Portland, Maine, has fashioned two large praying mantises made from copper foam, cement, and mosaic glass. McDonald has positioned her giant insects on opposite sides of a tether ball, and so on. I mean, this is just really fun, Art in the Orchard in East Hampton. Other good news that I think we should note for those of you who are Boston Red Sox fans, your team crushed the Houston Astros yesterday, 17-1. to 1. It was more like a uh, Little League game that would have gotten out of hand, except that the Houston Astros are, of course, one of the leading teams in the major leagues, and Boston crushed them. So congratulations, Boston Red Sox fans. It is your day. Okay, let's get back to actual things that might matter a bit more. And depress it, us a little bit more. Yeah, that's what I mean, because I, don't, I think that Art in the Orchard actually is really important. Boston Red Sox <laughs> winning 17-1, uh, not so much. Okay, what a mugshot from Donald Trump. Did you see it, Buzz? Oh, my gosh, it, that look on his face. Obviously, he posed it. Obviously, he thought about it a long time, and he has a very stern sort of uh He looks countenance. like a whack. He just looks like a, someone who's just out of his mind. I think he looks evil. Yeah, that's what I'd say. Yeah. And I can't imagine how anyone thought this was a good look for a photograph that was going to go viral, and it has and will continue to. But my goodness, what was he thinking? Why is this a good look? 
Well, I, I also read, where did I read it? It was in Slate this morning. I read uh, something like this. The, the debate on Wednesday night received 6,000 mentions in media in uh, a one-hour period following the debate. This, following his mugshot, got 13,000. More than double the number of hits. This guy, he looks in an ugly way <laughs> into a camera to make, take a mugshot, and he ends up getting more publicity than all the other eight candidates did for having a debate for their party's nomination. It's truly incredible. Well, I don't think there's any question that Trump knows how to use the media and manipulate the media to create coverage for himself. I wonder at some point whether or not that manipulating and uh, really monopolizing media uh, is, can be detrimental to him. So far, it hasn't been. You point out that all coverage is good coverage, particularly when it's dist distracting and detracting from all the other candidates. But he looks evil. You look at that and you say, that guy's going to be the president of the United States, the so-called leader of the free world? I've really? got a good idea, Bill. Why don't we take his visage from his mugshot, put it on a T-shirt, and charge $34 and watch the dollars roll into Trump? Yeah, I, 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 the other thing that was interesting in that mugshot and his, his uh, turning himself in in Georgia yesterday was that he apparently hired a bail bondsman instead of uh, posting the cash. For 200000 I didn't understand that either. He, uh, so for those of our listeners who don't live in this world or not familiar with it, a bail bondsman usually charges 10% of the uh, amount of the bond. That's 10% of the 200000 The uh, person who is being bailed out uh, is usually required to put up other collateral to cover the difference between what the cash amount paid, the non-refundable amount paid to the bail bondsman, that's his fee, and the person puts up collateral for the remainder of it, so the bail bondsman usually is at virtually no risk of ever losing anything. Uh, but why Trump would do that, I really couldn't figure out, except perhaps he's just one of the people, like everybody else, he has to not everybody else, but many people uh, in states that still have cash bail as a significant part of their uh, bail statutes. Uh, he, he, well, it's just one of the people having to get go to see the bondsman. Except or are he, he short on cash? Seriously? Well, he crows about being a billionaire. He, he, he's proud of being a billionaire. He, he you know, the, the, just before he went and, and was processed at this dreadful Fulton County jail, uh, we saw images of the Trump 747 flying, you know, arriving with the name Trump on his, and then he borrowed money at a cost of 10%, a certainty to pay 10%, in order to put up $200,000. It is perplexing. Well, let's look at one other aspect of Trump's present criminal problems. Uh, he hired a new lawyer, Steve Sadow, Sadow, S-A-D-O-W, uh, a lawyer who is, in fact, a, an accomplished, respected, sophisticated, and experienced criminal defense lawyer who has defended RICO cases, RICO meaning racketeering, racketeer, racketeer influence and corrupt organizations. That's the acronym for RICO. Uh, he, Trump is charged under the state RICO, and so are many of his confederates, alleged confederates. And 
He has hired this time a lawyer who really knows what he's doing and knows his way around the court and knows the statute and knows how to defend persons accused under the statute. Trump this time, and he has on occasion in the past, although often, you know, Rudy Giuliani and the like to the and others who are now his co-defendants being uh, not part of this description, he has an experienced and I think effective criminal defense lawyer at this point. It's not going to be simple for the Georgia prosecutors. I, I, I think Trump really knows that he's facing a serious consequence should he lose. Um, I hope Steve got a good retainer because of the uh, historical pattern on the part of Donald Trump. Uh, stiffing his lawyers. Stiffing his lawyers. And, and Bill, you and I have said, I actually said it on the air when I was being interviewed by uh, our beloved colleague, uh, Monty Belmonte. He asked me, would I, when Cheney, there was a 400-count indictment in uh, International Criminal Court against uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney, and he said, would you be willing to represent him? Here I was representing Guantanamo detainees, and I said, I believe everybody is entitled to a defense. I, I, I may choose not to because I felt that I wouldn't be able to zealously do everything that a good attorney should do. But, of course, Donald Trump is entitled to a good defense, and uh, the fact that, a, that a, a really good lawyer is willing to represent him should surprise no one, and no one should condemn the lawyer. I'm sure there are plenty of lawyers. I mean, I think that for the people who uh, we associate with, if they asked if they would be part of this defense, the answer is no. Wouldn't take it on in a million years. Wouldn't want to be part of it. Wouldn't want to defend that guy. Yes, he has an absolute right to an attorney, but he doesn't have an absolute right to you or me as his attorney. But lots of lawyers would be delighted, thrilled to be Donald Trump's lawyer in a big publicity, high, high-profile case that's going to make your reputation for the rest of your career. Oh, you mean like... Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell or John Eastman or is that who we're talking about? Well, those buzzes just named uh, three of Donald Trump's co-defendants, all of whom were his lawyers, who are now charged in Georgia and who are, I think, all mentioned as unnamed co-conspirators in the federal case in Washington, D.C. Buzz, before we came on the air, you were telling me something really distressing and important about the prosecutions in Georgia. Why don't you share that with our listeners? It's really chilling, Bill. The, uh, Georgia is now following the Florida legislature and Governor DeSantis in passing a bill that allows the legislature to remove a duly elected district attorney elected by the, in this case, constituents of her district um, to perform the functions of the judicial branch as part of being a, a, a district attorney. The legislature, a separate but equal branch, a separate branch, now passed a law in Georgia like the one in Florida that allows the legislature to remove a sitting prosecutor. The We're legislature, about- not the governor? Because the- th- DeSantis said, I removed him. I heard him in the debate. I got rid of that. There was a prosecutor there. I didn't like him, so I got rid of him. And, uh, and- I, I should disclose I haven't seen the actual law, but my understanding is there's a committee of the legislature. Oh, which is somewhat can- different. Okay. Yeah, now maybe they recommend it to the uh, to the uh, governor. So I, this is just breaking for me. Um, but they say that the governor and the legislature, the law says, um, that can uh, remove. Maybe the, I think the law is the legislature. Uh, anyway, what happens is somebody not uh, authorized constitutionally to do so can come from a different branch and remove a duly elected district attorney because they don't like. Uh, so are they threatening to remove the district attorney who has uh, brought the charges against Trump? Fannie Willis is, is that's obviously what 
promoted this. Um, but it, go, it, it gets even worse because what they did in, in part of the debate, they talked about how important it is to revive prosecutions that are now not do, being done like adultery, sodomy. Obviously, they're attacking uh, the sort of moral uh, venue that they've claimed as their own, as Republicans do these days, so that they can the law is going to parrot their own personal religious beliefs. So that if you have an affair, uh, that uh, and the district attorney fails or refuses to prosecute you, they can remove the duly elected district attorney. If you don't prosecute gay people for being gay, despite what the Supreme Court said, that you can't criminalize being gay, you can remove the district attorney. It is, it's unbelievable. Well, let's get back to Trump for a second. You're telling me that the district attorney who has indicted Trump can be removed and be replaced by a lawyer presumably a lawyer, selected by the governor or the legislature, and that that new district attorney could then null-pross or dismiss the charges against Trump? Is that what, is that what this is Exactly what I'm telling you. And, and Governor Brian Kemp pledged when he signed the law into, uh, signed the, the bill into law, he said this will curve, quote, far-left prosecutors who were, quote, making our communities less safe when they're following political agendas. This Dan. is Dan. I just want to add that uh, it is the governor that would get to appoint a new prosecutor uh, if Annie Willis is removed by this committee. That this I was paying so attention to. So the committee to. removes, the, the committee governor, removes when the governor, governor appoints. Got it. That's what I, my understanding of the law, and, and that's what they said on MSNBC last night. I think it was Rachel Maddow. Uh, this should make everyone just gasp with horror. We'll be right back with Max Page, president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. At the Amherst Montessori School, they believe that your child is inherently intelligent and that hands-on learning is critical to their developing brains. At the Amherst Montessori School, your child will be empowered to explore, discover, and learn through all five senses in mixed-age classrooms. At the Amherst Montessori School, the classrooms are filled with sunlight, natural materials, and views outside to the playgrounds. The Amherst Montessori School is now accepting applications for three- to six-year-old students for fall 2023 at amherstmontessori.org. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. Mom, tell us about Tom Lake. A woman and her three daughters gather at the family's northern Michigan orchard where, while picking cherries, the daughters beg their mom to tell stories of the famous actor she long ago shared a stage and a romance with. Mom dishes, and the daughters soon find themselves examining their own lives, reconsidering the world and everything they thought they knew. Tom Lake, new from powerhouse author Ann Patchett. Pick up Tom Lake at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. 
Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. And this is Your State You with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Max Page, I'm not sure I'm going to get you to say much on this, but I need to ask. Front page of today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, and I ask you really because you've been a longtime resident of Amherst, as well as the uh, now in your second term as president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, but two Above the fold headlines in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, Dateline, Amherst Pell Regional Schools, clock ticking to select school leader. Successor to Morris must be in place by August 31st. Committee releases meeting minutes of Super's exit. Uh, This by Scott Mertzbach. With less than a week before they must hire an interim or temporary superintendent to lead the Amherst Pell Regional and School District, Members said at a meeting Wednesday that they aren't sure who will be appointed or how long that person might be in the role. The story next to it with the headline, McDonald resigns from committee, has the subhead, chairwoman cites vitriol and distraction, among other reasons, for her decision to leave. This first sentence, character smears allegations of corruption and vitriol and distraction are being cited by Amherst School Committee Chairwoman Allison McDonald as playing into her decision to resign from her elected position immediately. It does sound, given the uh, resignation of the superintendent uh, and others who have left and the committee's uh, members who are leaving, that the Amherst School Committee and the school system is in significant turmoil, and I'm wondering what you might be willing to share, if anything, about this situation, either from the MTA's point of view or from your position as a longtime, very involved community member. Well, and, and also the chair, uh, Van Harrington, resigned as well. I mean, it, it feels like it's really disturbing. It's disturbing what happened to um, the kids um, and I should say, I went to these public schools. My three children also went through all the Amherst public schools as well. And um, this is, this is distur- it's disturbing what happened. And it's also then disturbing the, the kind of the, 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 the flight or the, or the decision by the superintendent who had frankly come in and are, I think, really stabilized in a previous crisis. So there was a lot of, I think there was a lot of positive feeling over many years for the superintendent. And there also seems, and I'm gonna sound like terrible writing, passive voice here, uh, because there's reports coming out. There's gonna be reports really evaluating where the district may have gone wrong in, in, um, in how they, how they um, protected our non-binary and trans kids. Um, but it seems like there was, there was clearly failure. <laughs> around the district and how they handle these complaints. Which was part of the flashpoint for the complaints about uh, the superintendent uh, and why, well, it's a little unclear, but certainly that's part of the story of his resignation. Correct. Whether he heard the complaints that were really more about the assistant superintendent who is now suing the district as well, um, you know, now committee members resigning it's 
it's a mess, um, terrible, terrible mess. And I, I do worry for the district in, you know, we did try to get, uh, you know, a, both a interim superintendent and then someone for the longer term. I also, so, I just, oh, I'm sorry, Max. I, I just want to point that yeah, out that early next week, I think on Tuesday, we're going to have Ben Harrington here on the program talking about why he resigned effective this past Monday, the 21st of August, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get more of the inside story from Ben. I I would like this from your perspective, Max. Amherst, people like to joke, is the place where only the H is silent. But both the uh, members of the school committee, uh, the uh, uh, chairwoman uh, who resigned, uh, and the superintendent uh, have really cited this vitriol. uh, How uh, extraordinarily well vicious is not too strong a word the criticisms become an Amherst and I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about that <clears throat> well look um, Amherst Massachusetts we're not immune to more national trends and we have seen we have seen kind of an intensity of, of pressure sometimes vitriol at directed towards um, leaders in general, school committees in particular. I, I say that cautiously because there seems to, there were real harm done here. Who you mean exactly with regard to how, how the school system responded to the uh, 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 situations and complaints made by uh, students who were it, uh, non-binary or, or otherwise were part of marginalized groups and the complaint has been the school system didn't protect them and didn't respond that that's correct and so so i don't want to at all suggest that there's not an issue here and i you know give a lot of credit to the student newspaper the graphic my old student newspaper i didn't write for it but it was i consider it mine and so i went to because i went to amherst regional high school did a lot of research then and really did incredible interviews to uncover um, this problem. So there's a real problem. There is also a level of vitriol that does send people running. Um, And it's not just Amherst, it's elsewhere. And it is really concerning. We're actually, I've written to our members, our 117,000 members of the MTA, celebrating recent victories in the budget that we've talked about on this show, but also warning that this year will be difficult, um, that the national trends of kind of um, suggesting, you know, attacking local elected leaders and attacking schools and and teachers and their unions will um while very different than other places in the country um are we're not immune to that so i do suspect that we will see in different places continued sort of a level of uh, a level of rhetoric that may not always be be useful but again as i say there needs to be a real real understanding of what went wrong here because there were clearly students whose whose complaints were were not heard and families whose complaints were not heard given that what do you think if you can share your thoughts on this what do you think the solution is at this point i mean there really are two questions here what's the short-term solution what's the long-term well i mean clearly clearly this is a case where because things seem to have been hidden or at least were uh, not out in the open (laughs) That there's full transparency, and I think that is why there's going to be a full report. What what happened? What went wrong? Um, and that that's a starting point. And then you know, 
um, then there needs to be a new leader, ideally not not sort of short term months at a, a few months at a time, although they are sort of desperate to try to find someone to to stabilize things. But over the long term, you need a good solid leader who will who will see people through. And you know, I, I guess I understand um, su the, the superintendent's decision that even though he came back, felt like he, his role might be a distraction. So, and I think the APEA, that is the Amherst Pelham Educators Association, That's the are, union. are local there. This is the, the, the local, the MTA local representing the educators in Amherst. I think while they voted, um, they w voted no confidence in him around this. They also wished him well on in whatever next pursuits. And maybe there's a maybe there's a place for a new new face, new role, new person to, to settle this. We are speaking with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. When we come back from this two, from this short break, we are going to talk about these national trends and the threats to educators across the country and in Massachusetts. Stay with us. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Amherst School Committee Chair Allison McDonald is stepping down from her role. McDonald cites in her resignation letter, the ugly habit in Amherst is to the extent which misinformation, outright falsehoods, and allegations of corruption and conspiracy are used to argue a position and engage the public behind one's opinion. McDonald goes on to say that reports of harm experienced by trans and queer students at the middle school are heartbreaking. McDonald's resignation follows Dr. Michael Morris stepping down and the resignation of Ben Harrington. The East Hampton Planning Board is considering a proposal for a new four-way signalized intersection on Route 10. This would help alleviate traffic for a proposed multi-million dollar retail and housing complex at the site of the former Tasty Top. The developer met with the board on Tuesday along with several engineers to present the plan. One option for the four-way intersection involves moving private Mountain View Street so that it's opposite the proposed Sierra Vista driveway, which would involve widening Route 10. The second option would mean moving the proposed driveway opposite the existing Mountain View Street. Several property owners were at the meeting and expressed concerns over the proposal. The next planning board meeting is scheduled for September 19th and will include more discussion. An East Hampton staple is closing its doors. Riff's Joint, located in the Eastworks building, will serve the public for the last time on Sunday, September 3rd. Riff's posted on Facebook saying it's with a heavy heart they close after 14 years. Rain could be heavy at times this morning, tapering off to some scattered showers. Still the chance for a thunderstorm this afternoon, a high of 70 to 74. Mostly cloudy, scattered shower or two, some drizzle tonight, overnight low of 62 to 68. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, chance for a scattered shower, a high of 78 to 82. And yes, the chance for a scattered shower on Sunday with a high in the low 70s. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. 
Technicians, this is your chance. Get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus at Gary Rome Hyundai or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. Be part of the family and receive truly exceptional compensation and full benefits. Join the Time Magazine's National Dealer of the Year team with a proven track record of team members averaging over 10 years at Gary Rome Hyundai. Technicians get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. To learn more and apply, go to GaryRomeHyundai.com slash family. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult hoping to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam. The Literacy Project offers free classes at five locations in Franklin and Hampshire counties. We also offer classes to help you prepare for college and to help you plan for a career. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. To find out about Literacy Project classes in Northampton, call 413-584-6755. To find out about our classes in Greenfield, Orange, Amherst, and Ware, check us out online at literacyproject.org. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you want support furthering your education and accomplishing career goals. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. We continue our conversation with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. During the break, Max and Buzz and I were talking about what happened at West Virginia University. I understand not in our backyard, but really, I think, uh, indicative of and, and emblematic of what is happening across the country and in some ways at the University of Massachusetts Amherst as well. Max, bring our listeners into the story of what happened at West Virginia University and why it is so concerning. Sure, yes, I know it may seem far away, but really it is the cutting edge of a national trend. West Virginia University is proposing to eliminate 169 full-time faculty positions and cut more than 30 degree programs from its flagship university. This is not, uh, you know, this is a, supposed to be their flagship research university um, and they're, they're cutting what was mainly in humanities, fine arts, and even in some pre-professional programs. Uh, it's really disturbing because there is a, um, it, it, it feels like there is a national effort to use, use declining enrollment. There is a national, temp, at least what I would say, temporary decline in enrollment. Which is a demographic yeah. trend, not, not because people are choosing not to go to college or to the university, but because there are fewer students of college age today than there were 10 years ago and that will be in 10 years from now. Well, that so there, that's, a, that's an important point, Bill. It, it, there is a demographic decline, partly because of the 2007-8 um, crash, which led to fewer children. Um, and we are starting to see the results of that now. But it is also because tuition and fees have risen so high and debt has risen so, risen so high. So for young people who might want to go, are saying, you know what, I, I think I'll skip college or or they don't make it through because of the high debt. So it is a combination of, of quote unquote natural um, decline in the number of college age kids, but also because of how we have disinvested in public higher education. And that's an example in West Virginia. 
So they have disinvested. So now they say, well, we have a budget crisis because we're so reliant on those student tuition and fees. We're going to have to make not temporary cuts or not invest more from the state, but rather completely decimate those departments. You don't you don't get rid of an of a department of his art or something or history and then bring it back in a couple of years when enrollment ticks up. These are these are long term, if not permanent cuts. The danger is that this is um, a trend that is in, in multiple states that is happening. And frankly, over the years, we have seen this even at our own flagship university where I teach, where there has been a drumbeat about about the, the science um, and engineering fields and huge investments there and the university advertising those. So guess what? More students are heading in that direction. And we are in danger really of undermining um, a flagship university that offers a broad education to its students. Well, tell me about this. What you just said, Max, was that the focus of these enormous cuts, actually the elimination of departments and the uh, and the firing, as a practical matter, of a huge swath of the faculty at West Virginia University is primarily in the liberal arts part of the curriculum. And I think you were saying that that emphasis on science and math and technology is, in fact, something, and engineering, uh, is, is something that is true not only at West Virginia University, but at campuses, well, I'm not sure about across the country, but I should ask you about that, but also true at UMass Amherst. So tell us about that. Well, that's true, Bill. I mean, over the years, and, I, and obviously, I mean, say the emphasis on on building up our you know our faculty and uh, our the buildings for the science and technology is fantastic and important. But we are and does attract at, and let's and let's be frank about this. It attracts not only students; it prepares students who want to go into those fields. UMass Amherst is competitive with other colleges uh, in in. Massachusetts and across the country, and being a, a leader in those fields is important to the university. It just is. That does not necessarily require elimination or diminution of the liberal arts, which is part of the purpose of a college and a university. That's correct. Bill, let me give you an example. Many people know I teach, I'm a historian, but I teach in the architecture department, and I've written about and um, the UMass Amherst campus itself. In the late 60s and into the early mid 70s, they built the Fine Arts Center at UMass Amherst, which many people have gone to, the largest arts complex west of Boston. And the, among the you know, 2000 seat theater and, 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 theater and places for dance and also the music department, there's also lifted up on a pedestal is 650 feet of north facing art studio space. That many have seen is the iconic, um, you know, we call it the Art Bridge. Anyone who's been to the UMass Amherst campus has seen this 650 feet long, of art, of big art studio space in the early 70s for working class kids in Massachusetts. Why? Because we felt like it was, that the the university felt like if it was going to be a great university, it needed to provide it for working class kids in Massachusetts outstanding arts facilities as well as science facilities, as well as engineering facilities. That was a statement about the value and the centrality of arts and humanities in a major research university. 
So that was a choice. And we invested a lot of money in doing that. And there, the, there's a choice here as well about how much we invest in our public colleges and universities and what regular students, our working class, middle class students deserve to have access to. At West Virginia University, those young kids, one of the poorest states in the country, those going to their flagship campus will no longer have access to those 30 programs. If you're wealthy, you go out of state, you go to a private university, you can have access to those. But working class kids deserve access to the full range of programs. And we need people who are versed in history, don't we? We need people who can make art and the like. So we need a full range of programs for our young people. Max, this is Buzz. And as somebody who taught uh, at a community college, that this the tension between liberal arts and humanities on the one hand and vocational or what they call skill-based education on the other hand is a tension that has been recognized, a balance maybe is a better way to put it, that's been recognized since the community college movement was first created in 1960. Is this the same argument that we're talking, is West Virginia sort of uh, leaning obviously too far um, towards the vocational side of things as opposed to the um, let's learn how to read, write, and critically think and analytically reason side of things? Yes, uh, and I don't think those need to be intention, Buzz. I know there is, it is seen as a tension, um, but uh, great scientists need to work together. They need to understand the cultures of other people. They need to understand the impact of their work. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole range of reasons why um, we need that full range of, of, of learning. But definitely, that is part of it. It is a bottom line as well. It's where's the money? Where's the private donations? Where are the business connections? And obviously, you know, UMass Amherst after Harvard and MIT, uh, the UMass system has more sort of grant money and contracts with corporations and the like than, than any other college or university in Massachusetts. And that's terrific. But we should not be deciding on what is the kind of university we want, what we want to offer based purely on who's ready to, who of the wealthiest are ready to throw in money. We need to have a baseline public investment so that we can support um, the education of our citizenry. It, it, is, it is ironic to me, or more than ironic, it's tragic, at a moment when we're all talking about how, how we need greater civics education, greater understanding of an increasingly diverse country, uh, um, that we would be, and again, I'm speaking nationally, but I also see the threats here, why we would be disinvesting in educating a broadly educated, knowledgeable um, group of young people. Okay, Max, in the 30 seconds we have left, is the consolidation of all of the languages, which we were just talking about, which I just learned about the other night, I, I, th I thought the Romance languages had been consolidated to one department, but apparently all languages other than English have been consolidated into one department at UMass Amherst. Is that worrisome and part of this trend? Well, that was, yes, that was an early early edge of this where, where there were multiple departments of different languages and cultures, I should say. These are rarely, these departments uh, were about the language and cultures of peoples around the world were kind of consolidated. And this was also about a cost-cutting decline in majors and the like. And I'm not saying that administrators don't have to be conscious of where there are numbers of students, but we need to promote and encourage students to study a broad array 
of subjects. We need those for for the for the future health of the Commonwealth. We are going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. This has been the segment we call Your State You. Max Page, we really appreciate your time, your insights. Really, it's just just a pleasure, really an honor to have you with us every week. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Buzz. Take care, Max. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Get on your bike in September with the 13th annual Will Bike for Food, benefiting the Food Bank of Western Mass. This fun cycling event takes place September 24th at the Lions Club Pavilion in Hatfield. Cyclists of all ages and levels can pedal towards a hunger-free future while cycling through the scenic Connecticut River Valley and then celebrating at the exclusive after party. So join a team of friends, family, or coworkers, or ride and fundraise yourself. Register today at willbikeforfood.org. Presented by Stop and Shop. My baby boy was a very good sleeper. He would nap in the morning and nap again in the afternoon, so my routine became that I would drink the first half of the time I expected him to sleep so that I could pass out the second half. Even during my pregnancy, knowing that it might be harmful to the baby, I could not stop drinking. The fear of any harm to that child was not enough to make me stop. Sometimes I would try to go to the park with him, but I was becoming really fearful of people finding out what a sick person I was. Today, since I joined AA, I don't have that sensation anymore at all. I have a purpose in life today. I know who I am. I know where I'm going and I feel good about it. I can be a mother to my child and I can be a wife to my husband and I couldn't be any of those things when I was drinking. Alcoholics Anonymous, it works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. And this is Art Beat with Donabel Cassis. Donabel has with her today two persons who you want to hear about. I was thrilled, thrilled to hear about them and their work when I was at Historic Northampton last weekend. Donabel, the microphone and the pleasure of the introductions, they are yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning, everyone. Historic Northampton, a nonprofit institution dedicated to preserving artifacts of Northampton's past, recently restored and reopened the 1805 Shepherd Barn a few weeks ago. And a series of plays this weekend, actually, which started last night, will inaugurate the barn as a performance space. And today we are joined by playwright, dramaturg, and educator, and frequent guest, Talia Kingston, and Patrick Gabridge, producing artistic director of Plays in Place. Welcome, both of you. Thank Thank you for having us. Now, first of all, Patrick, how cool is it to be the first performance in this gorgeous, renovated building? 
It's very exciting, very exciting that we get to do it. And, um, you know, it's funny because I was started talking to them about this barn back when it was still a long way from being renovated. And it was great that we were already talking about, well, can we do a show there to start things off? So it's very Oh exciting. my gosh. Oh my gosh. Well, um, now you are the producing artistic director of Plays in Place. And I love how your stories bring history to life. Can you tell us a little bit about how your organization works? So we're a small theater company and we always partner with a museum or historic site or other cultural institution. And we, we only make site specific theater um, and we always build from the ground up. So we will um, work with that institution to figure out what story makes sense for that space and then commission writers to make it and then make a full production and get it out to an audience. And we've done quite a few projects so far. So does that mean that this play or these plays are about Northampton and this, the history of this area? Yes, these plays are not only about Northampton, it's about they take place over three different centuries of Northampton and they're very much rooted in the space where we're at. So Talia's play, which you can tell you about, is about the Parsons who owned the property where the historic Northampton site sits. Now, pulling at the roots, which is what this series of short uh, site-specific plays happening at Historic Northampton this weekend um, guide the audience on a journey through three centuries, as Patrick had mentioned, of Northampton history. Now, Talia, the dramas of Pulling at the Roots examine the meaning of home and women's search for autonomy. Can you tell us about your play, which is called Circling Suspicion, um, and a little bit about the other plays that guests will have privy to? Sure, happy to. Yes, uh, so Circling Suspicion takes place in uh, 1678 on the very land, as we mentioned, that we will be sitting in on the barn. That land at that time was owned by Joseph Parsons, who was one of the first um, families, and they were one of the first families that settled the area, settled the town of Northampton. Um, and it's a uh, the very, uh, what we realized was because historic Northampton is essentially a series of homes that we wanted to center on the idea of domesticity and, and marital um, conversations and conversations that happen within sort of intimate spaces. And as playwrights, we took, we partnered with the historians and we took um, the historical record, but we were able to um, find the present conflict, like what are moments of conflict that happened in the, that we could actually bring to life. My mm. play um, is about Joseph and his wife, Mary, who was plagued her entire life with uh, accusations of witchcraft. Mm. And um, she, partly because she, they had been very successful. He was successful in business. She was very successful in raising children, in, in um, having children. She had 13 children and... Um, many of them survived to adulthood. So um, that incurred some jealousies and some suspicions um, along with some other things. She also was very proud and um, autonomous in herself, which is great now, not so great in the 1600s. Mm -hmm. um, then the next, so that's a 25 minute play. Then we move into Jasmine Rochelle Goodspeed's play, which um, is about Jonathan Edwards, who's the very famous um, reverend in Northampton. But we see him in a very different spot. We see him just trying to, just about to be ousted from his congregation and being confronted by his slave. Many people don't know that he owned um, at least one, but I believe three house uh, slaves at home. And um, and his slave Rose wanted um, to get married, 
And so she is searching for her own autonomy within that very restricted um, relationship that she mm. has. And then the final play, which takes you again, jumps another century, is Patrick's play, which maybe he can tell you more about. Yes, yes, please, Patrick, tell us about your the, the last of the three in the series. So my, my play is The Optimist's Razor, and it's about Lydia Mariah Child and David Lee Child, um, two abolitionists, and this is set in 1841. He had been out here growing sugar beets to try to undercut the slave production of sugar, um, but was a very bad businessman. And <laughs> Lydia Mariah Child was a very famous author who'd given up a lot to be an abolitionist and has an opportunity to um, take a job in New York City and edit a national anti-slavery paper. So it's a very contemporary kind of problem with two people in a couple trying to decide where are they going to live and whose career gets precedence and how they're going to manage that. So even though it's 1840s, it still feels like, oh, this is a conversation we have today. Absolutely. And, and I was fortunate, thank you very much, to be able to see a preview of these plays. Um, unfortunately, the, the whole series is sold out um, for this weekend. But, you know, I think, uh, do you have things in the works in the future, Patrick? Because I know people will be eager to see those. Yes, I mean, I think we're hopeful that maybe this can return. Um, mm -hmm. Place in Place has six different projects in various states right now. We have a play running at Old North Church in Boston called Revolution's Edge that takes place on April 18th, 1775, right before the war begins. And that's got another, uh, it goes till September 19th. So I think we have 11 more performances. That's been on a 14 week run there. Mm -hmm. um, and then we've got some shows that'll be coming up in other parts of Massachusetts over the next few years. So we've always got something going on. Now, Patrick, I'm curious about, because you're called Plays in Place, what is it about historic Northampton and the setting that really struck you when you first started this project? I mean, it's a great institution to partner with because they really spend their whole time understanding what the stories of this place are. And mm -hmm. so it made total sense for us to partner with them to, to create stories that are so tied and rooted to Northampton. Um, and now that I live here, it was a great oh. introduction for me. I used to live in Boston and then we moved out here about two years ago. So for me, it was a great introduction to the area and to get to bring our work out here and then to work with, we have a fabulously talented team. So, I mean, Talia was one of the first people who came on board, our director, Brianna Sloan, and then Jasmine uh, Goodspeed, our, one of our other playwrights. But the actors, just an amazingly talented team. So for me, it's been a real gift to get to work with all these people. Well, I want to say welcome to the area. Um, Bill, you had a question. I, I do. I'd really like to know. I want to just make sure I understand. These plays were written specifically for this place and historic Northampton's question one and question two, which is related. Are they indeed historically accurate? <laughs> they were written uh, for this place. Um, we partnered with the historians at historic Northampton to create them and then uh, got our... Um, got our playwright brains going and went back several times um, to do readings at different stages of development with the historians and their stakeholders at um, Historic Northampton, where we, we did tweak some of the historical details at that time, because obviously we're interested in theatrical impact of a particular moment, mm -hmm. and they're interested in the accuracy, so we um, they are accurate, uh, but uh, but they would, would often like say, you know, they wouldn't say that word, they would say this word and we would shift it. So mm. there was this beautiful symbiotic relationship in the development of the pieces that really were developed by local playwrights 
for a local place and now um, being embodied by a local ensemble of actors. So it's really kind of locally grown produce. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's wonderful. And, you know, uh, if you actually haven't visited historic Northampton, definitely go and see the museum. Um, it's open 12 to 5 Wednesday through Sunday. Again, the this series of plays pulling at roots, um, pulling at the roots is sold out this weekend, but you can look at the website for playsinplace.com for their other uh, plays happening throughout the region, of course, historicnorthampton.org. Um, Patrick Gabridge and Talia Kingston, uh, what a unique treat and pleasure to have this event this weekend. And Patrick, welcome to the area. Um, you are lucky to be in this place that's so rich uh, with the arts. And, um, you know, we thank you so much for bringing these stories to life for us. Thank you. Thank you. Donna Belcasis, we thank you for bringing Natalia Kingston from Wham Theater and Patrick Gabridge from Plays in Place to us. And we thank both of you as playwrights for bringing this to Northampton. Everyone who gets to go this weekend will be so thrilled. And I am thrilled that you are here. And I so hope you'll bring these plays back to historic Northampton. Thank you both so very much. And thank you, Donna Belcasis. This has been Artbeat. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. Presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. Former President Trump has been booked, fingerprinted, and had his mugshot snapped at Atlanta's Fulton County Courthouse after surrendering on charges of election interference. Correspondent Robert Costa. Georgia is not just a legal stage for former President Donald Trump this week. It's also a political stage now and in the future. Georgia is such a key political battleground going into 2024. It has a Republican governor and two Democratic senators, so both parties will be competing for Georgia voters. All of this unfolds in the Georgia courtroom. Officials on Maui have released a list of the names of 388 people still unaccounted for after this month's deadly wildfires. Correspondent Ben Tracy is on the island. Maui's police chief says deciding to release this list of names was not an easy thing to do, but they are hoping that some of the people that are on it are still alive and this number of the unaccounted for will drop even further. In the meantime, the search for remains in Lahaina 
continues. Confirmed death toll, 115. Local reports say at least five people have been killed in a massive line of severe thunderstorms in Michigan. The weather is something rarely seen in the state. Meteorologist Jim Cantore at the Weather Channel. Storms rolled across Wisconsin and Illinois, right through Detroit and right through Cleveland, and they're still going on this morning all the way to the eastern seaboard. More than 650,000 customers have no power right now in Michigan and Ohio. Police in Southern California say the gunman who killed three people at a well-known biker bar was a former officer who drove all the way from Ohio to confront his estranged wife. She was shot in the face but survived. Correspondent Carter Evans from L.A. The sheriff says Maurice Nolene is now conscious and speaking. Her status seems to be improving somewhat significantly. I was alone, so I was very scared. Jacqueline Bass managed to escape to a nearby fire station. I lost my daughter less than a year ago. I take care of my grandchildren, and I kept thinking I was so close to being gone and not there for them as well. Gunman died in a shootout with police. The head of Spain's soccer federation is defiant after a controversial kiss at a World Cup celebration. Ahead of a key meeting, the word was Luis Rubiales was going to step down. But afterward, on the BBC... The head of the country's football federation has said he won't resign. Rubiales has been under fire since kissing a Spanish player on the lips after the team's Women's World Cup win. The player said it was unwelcome. Online reaction was strong. At the Federation's General Assembly meeting, he said, quote, A consensual peck is enough to get me out of here. I will fight to the end. Steve Kathan, CBS News. This is CBS News. Hire with minimal effort and max speed with Indeed. Their hiring solution platform helps you attract, interview, and hire candidates efficiently. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. Ron had a tax problem he just couldn't handle on his own. I owed the IRS taxes for over five years, but I didn't have any money to pay the taxes. Those years cost him dearly. Most of it was fees and interest. It was horrible. Ron finally called in the pros. I called Optima Tax Relief, and boy, am I happy I did. <laughs> the leading tax resolution firm, Optima, is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau. They've resolved over a billion dollars for their clients. Ron was overjoyed. They settled my account with IRS. I was ecstatic. They are a lifesaver. They are. I am so happy. <laughs> Take Ron's advice and call Optima now for a free consultation. Yeah, don't do like I did and wait. Call Optima Tax Relief. Do it now. You'll be ecstatic like me. <laughs> call 800-343-6460. 800-343-6460. 800-343-6460. Tax Relief. Testimonial from an actual client. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, please visit OptimaTaxRelief.com. A pet owner who left her pooch behind is facing... For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Amherst School Committee Chair Allison McDonald is stepping down from her role. McDonald cites in her resignation letter, the ugly habit in Amherst is to the extent which misinformation, outright falsehoods, and allegations of corruption and conspiracy are used to argue a position and engage the public behind one's opinion. McDonald goes on to say that reports of harm experienced by trans and queer students at the middle school are heartbreaking. McDonald's resignation follows Dr. Michael Morris stepping down and the resignation of Ben Harrington. The East Hampton Planning Board is considering a proposal for a new four-way signalized intersection on Route 10. This would help alleviate traffic for a proposed multi-million dollar retail and housing complex at the site of the former Tasty Top. The developer met with the board on Tuesday along with several engineers to present the plan. One option for the four-way intersection involves moving private Mountain View Street so that it's opposite the proposed Sierra Vista driveway, which would involve widening Route 10. 
The second option would mean moving the proposed driveway opposite the existing Mountain View Street. Several property owners were at the meeting and expressed concerns over the proposal. The next planning board meeting is scheduled for September 19th and will include more discussion. An East Hampton staple is closing its doors. Riff's Joint, located in the Eastworks building, will serve the public for the last time on Sunday, September 3rd. Riff's posted on Facebook saying it's with a heavy heart they close after 14 years. Rain could be heavy at times this morning, tapering off to some scattered showers. Still the chance for a thunderstorm this afternoon, a high of 70 to 74. Mostly cloudy, scattered shower or two, some drizzle tonight. Overnight low of 62 to 68. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, chance for a scattered shower, a high of 78 to 82. And yes, the chance for a scattered shower on Sunday with a high in the low 70s. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And Bill, uh, it was 52 years ago that I came to this region. And um, so I've been here for a little bit over 50 years. But throughout my tenure here, there has been this jewel, this unique treasure of a school that at first uh, its focus was um, landscape architecture and making things just beautiful, and it's kind of uh, morphed incredibly appropriately into uh, making our environment sustainable. And with us are two trustees from the Conway School of Landscape Design, celebrating its, in the middle of its 50th year, and it is Molly Babiz, trustee, and trustee Bill Dwight. I'm going to start with you, Bill Dwight. Congratulations on 50 years. Thank you. It wasn't my 50 years. It was... It was Conway, sorry. Thank you. Um, and thanks for having us on. I appreciate it. I mean, the, you know, the one thing that I've always been proud of is the fact that Conway's been in the Pioneer Valley. It has a reputation globally, but, you know, it's overshadowed by five other colleges that struggle for preeminence. But the fact is, is that Conway has distinguished itself in the, in the realm of landscape design and land use. And the person sitting to my right... Molly Babiz actually has been part of that arc historically. And I think I, when I give you a heads up, Buzz, I defined her as our oracle. And I think you did. <laughs> you wrote she's our oracle. Yeah. And <laughs> I've, had, I've had you, Molly, uh, before I've had the opportunity of talking to you about Conway's School of Landscape Design. And you are, in fact, an oracle. So you were a student there, right? I was a student, 1983 to 84. It's a 10 month program. So. Um, I think I'm more barnacle than oracle at this point that I've been around for that long. Um, but I've been in a number of different That roles. was really good. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. That's a radio <laughs> I, I know. Um, you know, I've, I've been in a number of roles at the school and um, am now retired to being um, still employed by the school yeah, as trustee, but not for pay. Well, I'm going to come back to you, um, but, but let's go from Oracle to spectacle. Let's go Whoa. to president of the Northampton City Council, Bill Dwight, Former in a president. series. Yeah, no, yeah. Yes, yeah, getting back to the barnacle part. For, <laughs> former president of the Northampton City well, Council, that was Bill point. Dwight. But right, right. in all seriousness, what attracted you to become a trustee at Conway School? Well, an invitation, first of all, but the, it was... Um, Conway has transitioned from Conway. Actually, they originally founded in Conway, and it's where its identity was established. Uh, they have since moved to Village Hill, the Village Hill complex in the coach house. We have a campus. We, we actually now have an endowment. We, this, this is, 
basically so an enterprise. Conway, stop there. The Conway School of Landscape Design. Is in Northampton. Is in Northampton. Okay. We're just going to pause and reflect on that for a minute. Well, Please go on. Okay. <laughs> well, rather than change the name every time it moved, it seemed a little awkward, and Conway rolls off the tongue easier. And it's how people identify the place. And it, and it does have a national and international reputation. Absolutely. So if you kept changing the name based on where we were living, it'd be awkward. So One of the things I'll say about <clears throat> my long connection with the school is that it has changed quite a bit over time, but still adheres to the main principles of learning by doing, of um, having students there for just 10 months um, and working on projects at all different scales so they get an introduction to the breadth of the field of design and planning. And part of the genius of the school is that it has stayed so small and that it is so nimble and able to adapt the curriculum and the process of design and planning learning to changing conditions in the world. And this is, as you were implying, Buzz, uh, this has been a major uh, shift in concentration, I would say, of the projects and of the school as a whole to really be dealing with issues around climate change and environmental justice. Well, it was really interesting. Brian Adams, who comes on weekly and, and brings is all about sustainability, he was... Um, he was talking about, he had one guest here, and Bill asked, well, in the, because of these deluges we have, what should we do about our lawns? And he said, you shouldn't have them. You should have pollinators and that sort of stuff. So in the arena of what I thought of as landscape design, that is making stuff beautiful. Humans have wanted to do it since day one, right? But all of a sudden, when we're trying to sustain the planet, how have you shifted your focus there at Conway? Well, the question is, what do you define as beauty? I mean, for me, beauty is a rich environment where more beings can live in a healthy way. And if we think about the number of foods that we eat that are dependent on pollinators, for example, um, if we walk through the woods and we see the, the abundance of life there, then we want to incorporate more of that into the planning and design field. So we're looking, as this school always has, looking at that broader perspective of what's happening in terms of drainage, what's happening in terms of um, succession, and now what's happening in terms of succession of plants that are moving further north. So Bill, I asked you earlier, what, what, what brought you to this place where you really want to contribute to the Conway, you want to be part of the Conway universe. So what is it about the school? Well, the fact that we are on the precipice of... of an urgent calamity, or arguably in some cases, if you live in Hawaii or, or California, or Arizona, you're right in the, yeah, you're, or British Columbia or wherever, you're in the midst of it. And um, this has always been, obviously, it's not, it's not my unique concern, it's a concern that I think it sits in the back of our minds the way nuclear war used to at this point. There's this kind of looming dread. And Conway was creating and sending out the world stewards, shepherds, basically people who were whose skill set went to mitigating and, and accommodating and then trying to arrest this this scourge. And the in as Molly described, there's a, been an arc in the student interest, of course, as they as the candidates come and the school is defined by their interests as well. And it's to serve Communities, underserved communities in a lot of respects, is to, uh, that because, as you know, um, the impacts of climate change affect people in need um, 
more than people who have means or people who, who enjoy the certain privilege of low flush toilets, you know, that <laughs> the, the, so that's what actually gave me hope. And it's what, and, and to be honest, is also the most highest functioning board I have ever been part of. Really? Oh yeah. No. And the other thing was that we, we got through COVID like nobody else. And, and, and it dawned on me while we were negotiating all this, the reason was is everyone's a planner. They're all planners. They all they consider all the all the possibilities, the impacts, and the ramifications of each decision, and they made brilliant decisions. And we not only survived, we thrived, and we are thriving now as an institution. And clearly, the demand for that institution, it's the the need, particularly here in the valley in this region, is pretty intense. I love that insight that they're all planners. We all, every nonprofit I've been a part of, or even educational institutions. We always have five-year plans, long-range plans, right? And because of the urgency of today, I think it was Har- Harry Beecher Stowe once said, "The urgent gets in the way of the important." Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think that that is true for most. But I, I do want to circle back to what Bill just said, uh, Molly Babies. Uh, Bill Dwight just said that the the interests of the students define the school. Could you explain that for us? I think that the background of the students has changed quite a bit since I was um, <clears throat> there. And um, we often get people with a wide range of backgrounds. For example, the incoming class, about which I'm, of whom I'm really excited, um, shows a range of experience. We have people who have been in a professional capacity for decades who are coming, who are changing careers and coming back because of their concern about the environment, because they want to be actively working on the land, with the land. Um, we also have, you know, more recent graduates who tend to have a background in environmental studies, which was never an option when I went through school here in Northampton back in the 60s. <laughs> um, so at any rate, I think that their interests um, coincide and help to shape the direction of projects that form the foundation of the curriculum at the school. And I really wanted to get to this point early on because um, – The school curriculum is structured around actual projects for real clients in the region. Um, And the region, I will say, is broader Before we go any further, there's there's undergraduate and there's graduate school, right? The the Conway School is only a graduate program. It's only a graduate program. It's a 10-month Master of Science in Ecological Design. Got it. um, Which is one thing that draws students to the school, that, you know, in 10 months that they can get some basic training in all the aspects of ecological design through the projects that they work on. Could you stop there for one sec? The students who come for their master's degree uh, at the Conway School, are they primarily students who have been out in the workforce and are coming back for a second career, or are there more students who have just graduated? And and if they are recent students, did they have training and experience in this area, or is this a new career? It varies a lot. When I went through, I'd been out and working for 14 years. I was a religion major at Smith. I had no experience in the field. More and more, we're getting people, um, even when the undergraduates are coming in, uh, I'm recently from an undergraduate bachelor in, uh, in science or in um, arts are coming in with some experience in environmental issues. Um, this year, we have a higher percentage of students who have been out and working. It varies every year. Last year was maybe the average age was in the late 20s, and now it's the mid-30s, um, which really makes it interesting. And they, it's a very collaborative 
uh, process. Students work on individual residential scale or small scale projects in the fall. Each one has their own client. They learn the basics of the design process. So regardless of what skills you come in with, you have some to share and you'll need to be learning from other students and faculty on other aspects. In the winter, we work on large-scale municipal projects, open space and uh, regional planning, or um, you know, we're looking at watersheds and, and water infiltration and um, how landscapes can reduce flooding. We look at food security, absolutely. Um, um, hy hydrology, communities that are mandated by federal and state government, MEMA and FEMA, um, to... Uh, actually address these issues, but don't have the means to do it. So Conway, it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship with the region. And um, the, we, what we do for um, communities like Holyoke or Springfield or places in the Quabbin Valley or places in Franklin County, uh, Hilltown communities, the communities that don't necessarily have the means to leverage an analysis that's required in order to apply for grants, among other things, and get projects done. So Conway benefits by its students learning with professionals in real-life situations, as Molly described, and the communities benefit by having access to uh, a professional and uh, a professional reports that would normally cost hundreds of thousands of dollars that they couldn't swing. Mo Molly, how many students are there at the Conway School? No more than 18. We have 18. And how many projects are ongoing for local communities at any given time? Um, in the, it's just one project at a time. Uh, the fall are 18, student, you know, 18 individual smaller scale projects. In the winter, we usually have between six and eight larger community scale or regional planning projects going on. And in the spring, again, it's a more focused but still municipal scale design projects. So we are talking with Molly Babies and Bill Dwight, trustees of the Conway School. We're talking about the graduate program in sustainable landscape planning and design. And we're talking about the projects that students engage in for the benefit of the communities in which we live. We're going to talk more about that and find out how we could get involved in such a project right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Winesick Nursery in Hadley has been named Best Local Garden Center in this year's Reader's Choice Awards, sponsored by the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Owner Michael Winesick would like to thank each and every customer who took the time to vote for Winesick Nursery in this year's Reader's Poll. It's an honor and a privilege to hold that local title and to live up to that reputation. Visit Winesick Nursery on Route 9 in Hadley and at winesicknursery.com for the best landscape and gardening supplies. We are the growers. Come to the source. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project 
from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Smith Academy in Hatfield is accepting school choice applications now. With an average class size of 10, Smith Academy supports all students. They offer more than 20 clubs, 8 AP courses, 14 sports teams, work study, and internships, and free dual enrollment at HCC and Smith College. Computer science for all students. With a graduation rate of over 95%, most college bound, Smith Academy can prepare you for the next step. No cost to apply or attend. Call us or go to HatfieldPS.net and schedule a tour today. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. We're continuing our conversation about the Conway School and its graduate program in sustainable landscape planning and design. Here with us to talk about it are trustees Bill Dwight and Molly Babies. And Molly Babies, um, we were talking uh, about just before the break about the projects, the kind of projects that students are engaging in and the impact it has on the communities uh, where those projects take place. Could you give us a few examples of the kinds of projects you have going on right now? I'd love to. There's, um, there's a particularly good example that I think highlights the environmental justice aspect of the, of the program. Um, and, and also the fact that we are trying to build more, we are building more uh, collaboration with communities and neighborhoods over time so that it's not just a 10-week project, you know, but can be picked up. In 2014, the Springfield Food Policy Council came to the school looking for some help in d defining where community gardens could go and you know what kinds of food could be grown within the city as part of giving access to people who don't normally have access to fresh produce all the time. Um, that project ended up identifying a number through a very... Uh, I don't want to get into the weeds here, but it was you know, literally of, into the weeds. Yeah. <laughs> really, uh, figuring out what kind of criteria for what kinds of uses, and d developed a project report that the food council took, and then came back in the in the next year in 2015, where an individual student in the fall worked on a particular site that had been identified as a good community garden site, and she um, ended up providing a, a plan for that neighborhood. Um, so that was a site design project. Um, ongoing work has been done with alums who formed a firm called... Alums of Conway. Of Conway, the Regenerative Design Group. Um, and they came back and have overseen the design and construction of different projects um, that, that were already underway in Springfield. So our attention to food security in urban areas is one thing, one aspect that we find really important. And to do this more, we need um, to find underwriters for those projects or communities that have the ability to hire Conway students because it's not something we can offer for free. It's one of the major income uh, re you know, revenue sources for the school. And could you tell us how this works? In other words, there's a project. I take it there's a faculty person, there's a student, uh, there's a collaboration with the individual city or town or uh, governmental body. Explain explain a little bit more about that, if you We would. have somebody who works specifically um, recruiting projects, and she goes around and talks with different municipalities, with nonprofit organizations, um, with banks to say, are you interested in underwriting, you know, something like this in this region, um, in, the, in the region where you have customers. Um, and then when the faculty looks over the uh, the alternatives for kinds of projects that are, you know, whether it's a 
there are a lot of different options, but and more information, of course, is available on Conway School's website. Um, but then the, there is a team of students on these larger projects who work together collaboratively with the guidance of various faculty. Conway faculty is um, an interesting body because there are some core faculty, but we also bring in practitioners who have been out in the field who can come in and advise, who come in and teach a class periodically. So that way, the school stays really current with what's going on in the field through these practitioners. I mean, and for a particular project, you'll have a, a sort of adjunct uh, faculty member who has expertise that will assist in that particular project. Is that what we're saying? Um, that's sort of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that through the different faculty and adjunct faculty who come through the program, that that gives the students a constellation of knowledge that they're going to need to apply. But a lot of the program is about... Um, how you learn by doing. I mean, that was always a core. When Walt Kudnohovsky started this pro program in 1972, he said, students in traditional LA programs are not learning enough. They're hearing, getting a lot of theory, but they don't understand how to deal with clients. They don't understand when they go out to a real site. You know, all of these things were things that he instituted that now traditional programs of landscape architecture have also adopted, interestingly. But he was really a maverick in that. He was really out in the front. I, I remember in the mid-'70s talking to Walter Kudnohovsky, and he, and he was talking about how his Harvard education was insufficient because it was all in the classroom. It didn't help us when we get actually our hands dirty. Right. So, Bill Dwight, do the, the people that are responsible for grants, the people that we want to know about Conway, is there an outreach to those kinds of people? Well, I mean, we've been appealing to the legislators, and in fact, actually, the legislative de delegation for Western Mass is all to a person, signed on and endorsed the prospect of earmarks, possibly. Um, we, we're reaching out to Congressman McGovern because this is his wheelhouse, his food security and agriculture. Um, and we, we are offering opportunities here that for communities that might not otherwise be able to realize these things. And we, you know, I, mean, I would give you another example that's closer to you and Molly, the town of Plainfield. We developed a resiliency plan, a uh, climate resiliency plan for them. We, I say we, I had nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing. But yeah, which is probably encouraging. If they saw me wandering out the woods, they'd, they'd go, okay, we, we need to find him a home. But I, I think the, but town of Waitley, same thing. We, we, for Hoyoke, if you talk to Aaron Vega someday, um, he's one of our biggest champions because mm -hmm. we've done a number of projects for them that he said, compare and exceed what he's experienced um, from professional agencies. So, Could you circle back to one thing you were talking about, which is the urban aspect of landscape planning? And I'd like to know whether or not any of your projects deal with this issue of growing food. You've been talking about uh, food insecurity. Growing food uh, in urban areas. Absolutely. I mean, that's what the Springfield Project was all about, was identifying the kinds of um, you know, what properties that are vacant now could have, could be used for orchards? What could be used for community gardens? What could be used as teaching sites for local folks who want to learn how to grow more food themselves? So it ran the whole gamut. Um, I think that the urban, we have been trying to find more urban projects because we see that as a really critical need. But um, Ken Byrne, who is the... Uh, academic director of the Conway School talks about both the horizontal range of projects that the school provides and the vertical range. 
the vertical range being different um, scales from site to neighborhood to municipality to region that I've spoken about, but also that we we try and have projects that are urban and suburban and rural and wild. So we're dealing with all of those aspects and trying to find a balance of projects that will introduce the students through their project and through the projects that their cohorts are working on um, that will introduce them to this incredibly broad field of land use planning and design. Yeah, so if there's actually an appeal here, the appeal is to any community that might need our services because we benefit from access to their problems and uh, in turn, uh, anyone, any any agency or program or bank that wants to help uh, support this and leverage this money for communities that normally can't access this money, we're game for that. That's That would be the appeal. That and love me. Have a problem? Call Bill Dwight. This is so counterintuitive. <laughs> um, no, I'm just joking with you, Bill. I, I, I would love to know a, a number of other things about the Conway School. Let me go back to one re really remedial question. It's the Conway School because it started in Conway. How long have you been in Northampton? Well, that, I never have a clear memory on that. I think it's since about 2018 that we actually moved into the old coach house at Village Hill. Um, and rehabbed the old barn there, which is wonderful because we started in a barn in 1972, so it feels like home, um, and then have that as a, um, a place that we could actually invest in and improve. And you told us you have 18 students at a time. Mm -hmm. Where are they from? They are from all over. I mean, this year they come from Oregon, from Washington State, from L.A. Uh, they come from New England. A lot of them come from New England, but um, fewer this year, actually. They come from the East Coast. Uh, D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, Michigan. Um, can't remember all the others, but it's increasing. We've had, yeah, California. We've we've had yeah, students. Hopefully, from, you have some people from California because California really needs you and we them. We do. We do this year. Um, well, yeah, but we've also had international students from Norway, from Spain, from um, South America. And sometimes, uh, what happens? Uh, what students do after they leave Conway and go out into the real world? Uh, if you could, there was a New Yorker article, and I believe that I had the opportunity of speaking with one of the graduates who uh, has had a very profound impact on the Catholic Church, and could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, actually, Molly Burens was the student who worked on the Springfield Food Security Plan um, way back in 2015, and she, she, when she left Conway, she felt as a practicing Catholic um, that the church owned an awful lot of property throughout the world and that that property could be put, put to better use if somebody could identify it. And um, her main thing, she went straight to the Vatican, tried to find whatever resources they had in terms of maps, which they did not. She went straight to the Vatican, knocked on the door, excuse me, could I see yeah, the Pope? Yeah, hi, I mean, Mr. Pope, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except she really was very effective in actually identifying these properties. Well, and the reason was because she also went to ESRI, the, the foundation, the organization, corporation that creates ARC design and uh, GIS systems, and actually did the mapping herself. And um, I think the fact that the Pope, current Pope is very much uh, in sympathy with understanding the, cl the climate crisis that we're in, it's been a really good resource to figure out how can we use these lands. Her thought initially had been planting more trees, but I think she's really thinking about food now. 
Yeah. So she's had a profound impact globally on the use of land in quantities that we just can only imagine, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, Bill Dwight, before we break, how can people find out more? How can people let us know about a project? How can people solicit the Conway School's help? Well, I, um, I've been advised, and I think this is a wise and sage advice, that to simply say Google us. Um, if you're interested in, in um, uh, partnering with us or if you're interested in helping us out financially, just Google us, Conway School of Landscape Design. And just for, just for giggles, it's CLSD. No. CSLD. CSLD dot edu, um, and I'm sure there'll be a link on the podcast and and flare it up somewhere. Yeah, yeah I'd like to know, I'd like to note this. There's a wonderful statement. I don't usually uh, take things from organizations' websites, but this one is really really profound. I think it's the banner at the top. It's a quote from Bill McKibben. Hmm. Conway offers the kind of education you need, not just to make a living, but to make a difference. Thank that you, is. Bill McGibbon. <laughs> Thank you, Molly Babies. Thank you, Bill Dwight, both uh, trustees of the Conway School. Uh, we'll be right back. We're just going to talk right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Amherst School Committee Chair Allison McDonald is stepping down from her role. McDonald cites in her resignation letter, the ugly habit in Amherst is to the extent which misinformation, outright falsehoods, and allegations of corruption and conspiracy are used to argue a position and engage the public behind one's opinion. McDonald goes on to say that reports of harm experienced by trans and queer students at the middle school are heartbreaking. McDonald's resignation follows Dr. Michael Morris stepping down and the resignation of Ben Harrington. The East Hampton Planning Board is considering a proposal for a new four-way signalized intersection on Route 10. This would help alleviate traffic for a proposed multi-million dollar retail and housing complex at the site of the former Tasty Top. The developer met with the board on Tuesday along with several engineers to present the plan. One option for the four-way intersection involves moving private Mountain View Street so that it's opposite the proposed Sierra Vista driveway, which would involve widening Route 10. The second option would mean moving the proposed driveway opposite the existing Mountain View Street. Several property owners were at the meeting and expressed concerns over the proposal. The next planning board meeting is scheduled for September 19th and will include more discussion. An East Hampton staple is closing its doors. Riff's Joint, located in the Eastworks building, will serve the public for the last time on Sunday, September 3rd. Riff's posted on Facebook saying it's with a heavy heart they close after 14 years. Rain could be heavy at times this morning, tapering off to some scattered showers. Still the chance for a thunderstorm this afternoon, a high of 70 to 74. Mostly cloudy, scattered shower or two, some drizzle tonight, overnight low of 62 to 68. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, chance for a scattered shower, a high of 78 to 82. And yes, the chance for a scattered shower on Sunday with a high in the low 70s. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Come on over. Cooperative Bank. 
Hi, I'm Missy Tatro, Vice President of Mortgage Originations at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Did you know now is the perfect time to save on your mortgage? I'm mortgage originator Kimberly Gates. That's right. At Greenfield Co-op, it pays to get pre-approved. I'm mortgage originator Jessica Eau Claire. If you're looking to buy a home, be sure to get a GCB pre-approval to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th, be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan amount, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. July turned out to be a fairly unpleasant month for people selling a home and for buyers. Sales continued to fall, but home prices ticked higher. The National Association of Realtors reports sales of existing homes declined 2.2% from June, but were down 16% from a year ago. The Federal Aviation Administration has scheduled a series of meetings at airports to address airport safety after a number of near collisions in recent weeks. A New York Times investigation points to staffing shortages among air traffic controllers as a contributing factor. Subaru is recalling more than 35,000 2024 Crosstrex and Imprezas. The company says the instrument panel harness may contact the steering beam bracket, damaging the wire insulation and causing a short circuit. That, in turn, could lead to a loss of power. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. We're going to continue our conversation with Bill Dwight and with Molly Babiz. And uh, Bill, you and I uh, met each other this past Monday in Deerfield at Berkshire Brewing Company, which um, graciously allowed uh, its facilities in Deerfield to be used in order to host dignitaries like crazy, including you. Bill Dwight, former president of the City Council of Northampton, um, to, in order to uh, help support what's being called the Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund. And I just want to point out, today is the last day for farms to apply um, for uh, up to $5 million. We hope it's going to be $5 million um, in uh, funds to support farmers so they don't have to borrow money and go deeper into debt, but rather have some grant money to help defray the damage and the financial loss caused by the deluge that we've been suffering uh, this year in this region. Uh, the application, you can find it at CISA, Community Involved Sustaining Agriculture, at the CISA website. You can get uh, a copy of the application. It is due today, last chance. It'll be the first round of disbursements made in equal amounts to all eligible applicants. But, Bill, um, that was a really moving uh, uh, event on yeah. Monday. Yeah, I mean, we've we've okay in our our lifetimes we've experienced multiple five hundred year storm events. So obviously that that measurement is is. I think we got to find a new one. Yeah, we need to work on that. And the fact is, is that the people who tend to be most vulnerable, particularly here in the valley, um, um immediately tends to be the farms. They're in low-lying areas. They're, they benefit from, they've benefited from historical flooding because of the siltification and the silt that creates some of the richest soil you'll find in this country. 
But the fact is now that's in jeopardy. All of that's in jeopardy. And the farms we know have been under pressure for a long time here in the Valley as, as larger corporate form, farms started to take over. But the fact that land, unfortunately, when it starts to become available, when it's no longer farming, becomes appealing to um, development, which has non-permeable surfaces that creates, that even further aggravates the flooding issues that we are clearly going to have. This is not a blip. This is a trend. Pave and paradise and put up a parking, parking lot. Line. Yes, exactly. That was prescient. In, but that was more about aesthetics. This is actually about how we survive. survive. I mean, Northampton actually is surrounded by a series of levees that were built the exact same time as the ones that were built around Lake Pontchartrain. Um, And we can see how effective (laughs) that was during the hurricane now. Um, And that was back when we were a socialist country. We're not anymore. Now these communities are expected, all these communities up and down, all built along rivers and streams uh, that where they found their industry base now are all in peril. And again, this is what Conway, Conway can go and do an analysis of a particular region and understand its hydrology, how the water moves, and then also to address potential risks in floods, and but also how to mitigate circumstances like that. Molly Babies, we are friends and we are neighbors, and uh, we live in, I live at about 1,400 feet in elevation, and we have seven gardens surrounding our house that, uh, that we love to maintain. We didn't suffer any water damages, and yet here we are down in the valley, um, and we've said it on the show for, for listeners who frequently listen. I'm, I apologize for the 10th time that I've said it, but if you have a drought, what happens is you lose that year's harvest. If you have a deluge, you lose the topsoil, as you were saying, Bill Dwight, some of the richest in the globe that is here. So as somebody who's familiar with with working with landscape and soils, do I have that right, that the higher elevations kind of escaped the kind of damage that the lower ones suffered? Yes. I mean, certainly we weren't flooded the way that the CSA in Conway was, um, but the roads have been, you know, tremendously damaged. Um, our driveway is totally washed out, and that's because the field next to us um, is shallow to bedrock, and therefore it flooded us. So, you know, the farmers there have not been able to brush hog to, or to mow to hay those fields. Um, that's been a big, I think, uh, difficulty for some local hilltown farmers. Um, I think that that's why it's important to look at things across a spectrum to understand what's happening regionally as well as globally so that we don't go get into an us-them kind of situation. We need to be looking at in the lower-lying areas. What areas can be dedicated to flooding? We need to be able to provide for high water. As Bill has said, it's going to be coming much more frequently, much more intensively, um, and we need to provide for that rather than continuing to try and rely on ancient dams that are then going to flood and have a much greater impact. Um, I think that there are ways in which we can recommend planting in different areas that can help to stabilize soils. California, you know, with those, those incredibly steep slopes that once they get burned, then all of that, you know, the mudslides that go down, that's something that we really need to um, figure out. How can we stabilize those soils? And what do we not need not to build in certain areas because of the fragility of the soils? I have a different topic, if you don't mind. Uh, and really 
uh, pose it to you uh, as a planner, and in particular to you, Bill, as someone who's been involved with municipal government. And what I'd like to know is your perspective on these local initiatives around climate change. We hear a lot, and people do a lot, and there is a push for local governments to say, we'll be carbon neutral by 2035, and or the downtown New North, downtown Northampton plan will be uh, devoted to sustainability, and that will be a driving force. But a lot of people, I think, say, really, how much difference does any of that make? And I would appreciate your perspective on that. Well, the argument, the difference is cumulative. It's not, it's not like nature has an epiphany when Northampton redesigns its main street. And so the, – <laughs> Wait a second. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> nature does not have an epiphany. But it's, I, it, I, I thought nature did. If you, well, it, it, I don't think so. I haven't seen evidence of that. But the, 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 the fact is that the cumulative push, the, the conversation has changed over the last 20 years about – I mean – Over the last five years. Well, you know, and gets more and more urgent as people start to – more and more recognize that this is not, as I said, this isn't a, a phenomenon. This is us. This is what we have now. I mean, you know, California doesn't have seasons anymore. They have calamities. They base it on their, their fires or mudslides and their earthquakes and stuff. We, we, so globally, but also nationally, if you don't commit to that, um, if you don't commit to those aspirational goals. It may not be achieved, but at least you're moving towards them as opposed to standing there with your hands in your pockets and say, what can we do? Because doing that got Donald Trump the presidency in one level. So I'm just saying, revealing my colors here somewhat, that, that I think that it's critical that everyone, that every, every municipal law and every uh, uh, zoning change, all of it must what must be of paramount importance in the consideration of all those things is how does this protect us in the resiliency phase and how do it re how does it reduce our contribution to the crisis that actually exists? I think the other thing is that as we do try, um, we make efforts on a lot of different levels, whether it's individually, do I drive an electric vehicle now or am I going you know, to be okay with a hybrid, you know, all of those kinds of individual decisions that need to get made. I agree with Bill that they are cumulatively the, moving us forward. I think we're also learning that some of the uh, solutions we thought were out there are not panaceas, that all of a sudden, okay, now we're mining for precious minerals to put into photovoltaic panels or to put into um, batteries. Um, so, I mean, I think that we are learning, we're trying to learn. And the question, and I'm going to get back to the Conway School on this, is what do we have to unlearn first? That was one of the biggest lessons uh, in my training at Conway, was there are certain assumptions we make that, you know, maybe are not any longer true, or that we need to let go of so that we can bring in new knowledge. And that's what all of these efforts, I think, are leading toward, Bill. Well, what are some of those assumptions, Molly? Oh, now you've caught me. I'm not sure I can say. Well, I mean, I think that the one example that I gave is, you know, I, that electric vehicles aren't going to be the panacea. You know, what maybe we need to look back at um, always getting more things locally. It gets back to local food and why it's important to protect these farms in our region so that we're not transporting things from California or from Florida, which or may or may Chile not be able to produce Or from Chile or from China. It. Exactly, yeah. Well, the, the other thing is, for instance, uh, early on, 
people thought an, an alternative to fossil fuels was burning wood. But that's that, those are carbon sequestration systems, and it actually contributes it contributes carbon it introduces the carbon back into the air. It's not a plus. It's just it's so as, as it's removing oxygen from the air. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it turned out it wasn't good, <laughs> and, and, then, and and then we we replaced oil significantly with. Gas. gas. It wasn't that natural gas, but that was, of course, the fossil fuel industry, right? De- definitely pushing us in a direction. Now, that's the thing: is you're competing with agencies that have a lot of money that invest and have mm-hmm. um, they have strategies. Well, Bill Dwight, I actually think the issue that you raised and the answer you gave to why do our local efforts matter goes to something that's not just the individual contribution but to the values that a community lives by. And those values are expressed in many ways. And one way it is in zoning laws and in whether or not we put down more concrete or we have more trees and what the downtown looks like. And that, I think, goes to the quality of life that we have and how important that is. And therefore, the efforts we make and the money that we spend is actually returned to us many times over regardless of what the actual number is, which is going to bring me to something which maybe you'll be willing to share with us. I'd like to know your opinion of the plan for downtown Northampton, which we'll do right after this break. Listening to Talk the Talk. What's with cooking Bill at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and like co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, here to corn, tomatoes, and watermelon. With over 20 and years of experience at the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn, tomatoes, sweet tiny little No time to cook today. The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op. Wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair. This shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist, releases certificates on the provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, drink food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years. The food bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the food bank. And this Tuesday, you can save 30% on your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738 at Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with the Conway Schools trustees, uh, Molly Babies and Bill Dwight. And Bill, uh, Bill Newman was just asking you about zoning and the role that it plays in the kind of planning we need to sort of uh, sustain the life that we still continue. Uh, Actually, I was asking Bill a more pointed question. What do you think <laughs> of the plan was. for downtown Northampton? Oh, that is what you were asking. That's not what I was thinking about, but go ahead. Well, I, I actually am in favor of the project. As it as it exists, as it exists in now, because essentially, plan. you know, despite what you see and have read, that 
there was a lot of public process, a lot of public process. Yeah, I mean, the people, I, I agree with that. I just want to say, because I read all the time in the Gazette, there were no hearings, there were no this, there were no that. I remember hearing after hearing after event, after presentation after presentation, and then a vote. We all got to vote on it. That's right. It's been, it's been vetted. But the, you, this is what you come to expect. You know, of course, this is a significant change, and it'll be a significant investment from the state. But it's, and in fairness to the people who are complaining, people don't really pay attention until right until are it's bo- until, imminent. until suddenly the bulldozers show up. And yeah, that's, and, 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 I, and I understand that, and I also understand the urgent concerns of retailers of bricks and mortar stores downtown. I'm saying well, how, you know, not only is this going to disrupt us in the exactly. long in the long term, but for the next three years while this is going on, oh my God, what's going to happen to my store? Right. And they and they, they are in peril anyway. Online purchasing, of course, has been a significant threat to them among uh, high rents in downtown Northampton. Let's be let's be honest here. Northampton actually has some of the highest commercial retail rents and contracts in in the state. So those pressures exist. But the fact is, is that to the conversation, to the point of the conversation, this is to promote pedestrian and public access to the public commons, including bikes that do not contribute to the carbon crisis that we are currently experiencing. And at the same time, reducing Massachusetts would impel, compel Massachusetts to do this. The state of Massachusetts was for safety. But safety was... Is, and when you say to do this, what you're saying is Massachusetts, the state invest. is paying for yes. a lot of it. 20, I think $26 million. Or from the state, for, yeah, the from plan the state. That, for the plan that we voted on. But here's what I would love to know from you, Bill Dwight. Um, there is part of this plan that calls for a bike lane in both directions right. on Main Street. A lot of people say, why are we using that space for bike lanes when we have bike lanes that go around Northampton? They're pretty accessible. Why not just put some... Uh, bike racks at the end of the or at the places where the bike paths intersect and we use that space on main street for either pedestrians or more uh commercial space or i don't mean parks and water but no no not for parking but but for for walking well the actually the you'll see that the, the design actually features much wider sidewalks and created a larger promenade public space the dedicated bike lanes is to it, it actually make sense. They're, they are legitimate forms of transportation. They are legitimate. And that um, it allows safer access. Right now, with the herringbone parking and the way it goes now, it's, it's, it's very dangerous to ride a bike downtown. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we can actually contribute to that and make it safer and allow people to understand that they can have access by bikes, which maybe even become more relevant as, as we go further in this particular crisis that we're seeing now. Um, I, I, you know, the beauty of road digesting or dieting, I'm sorry, actually works. Now, reducing it to a single lane with uh, turn lanes actually is much more effective than right now where no one knows if there's one, two, three, or four lanes in downtown Northampton. And And the resistance to that is identical to the ones that we have for roundabouts. Again, these are engineered applied practices all over the world and they work. And it's not like Northampton's going to be the first place where suddenly people are going to spontaneously combust in the middle of the street. And it's not, it's, but the resistance is everything I would expect it to be. And it is playing out just as I expected it would. Molly, from a planning point of view, you have some thoughts you might want to share with us about this? As a Hilltown resident, no. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact is, actually, this is to promote um, 
Northampton historically was the town center for all, it was the county seat. It was where all the farm, local farms came and did their, their transactions. And as such, it was always, it had that vitality. And that's all, what everyone always said, distinguished Northampton. It had vitality. It had people that you could see congregating in the street. It wasn't Hartford or Worcester. But that's, as, as the stores start to close um, and restaurants and bars are starting to open, but the idea is to appeal to people to come from the hill towns, to come from north, south, east, and west, to continue to come to the community for the, the place as opposed to a store or a particular bar or something. And so as such, it is, it is not only just exclusive to Northampton, it, it is designed to be an appeal for a community gathering spot, a public commons. I actually do have um, a comment as, a, as a thinking about my um, refusal to <laughs> respond. You have the right as, to remain silent. As Everything a, you say can and will be used in, against in you. The, in the one minute we have left. Okay. In the one minute, I will say that it, a difficulty of living in the hill towns is that so many of the needs that we have do require transit down to the city. And we have no public transportation up there. And that was a big reason for moving the school from Conway down to Northampton. Um, I know there's only a few seconds left, but I think that really understanding how do we engage the, the outlying areas in a way that doesn't increase our consumption of gasoline is going to be a really important task. That's really important. Well, I, I think what I got out of this conversation in the couple seconds that we have left is that, like the Conway School, the importance of planning, the importance of trying to figure out where we, where we want to be 5, 10, 50 years from now, particularly in the context of the climate crisis. I really want to thank you, Bill Dwight. I really want to thank you, Molly Babies. Thank you, Conway School, for the next generation of planners that we have to help us get out of this crisis. CSLD.edu. Exactly. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. Hi, this is Tom from 4-H. What will the next 100 years look like for today's youth? According to the 4-H members of Hampshire counties, there are no limits. Youth, supported by adult 4-H club leaders, are being prepared to take on any role they can imagine. Astronaut, director, hockey player, surgeon, engineer, and CEO. These are just some of the roles that a recent survey shows that our 4-Hers not only dream about, but are preparing for. Join the 4-H team. Call me, Tom, at 413 413- Five four five zero six one one. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD two turn.